Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. As a matter of fact, it is the last Monday in September. Thank God 2020 can't be over fast enough for us. How about for you? I know Pam and I. Yeah, we, we want it done. But the big joy for us this year has been has been coming to you every single week live from the Adrenaline Radio Studios in Whittier, uh, bringing you Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line, talking to the movers and shakers, the artisans, the craftsmen who make the wonderful movies and TV shows that are keeping you entertained while you have been in the confines of your house uh, throughout the lockdown and the pandemic. Um, directors, writers, producers, costumers, video, uh, film editors, video editors, sound editors, sound mixers, uh, screenwriters, authors, musicians, actors, you name it, we're talking to them. And speaking of talking to people, I'm very excited. You've heard me talk about this book uh, the past, for a few weeks now, Filmmaking Confidential. And by the way, if you're listening to us on AdrenalineRadio.com, if you want to check out this week's very cool tablescape, uh, since I do a new one every single week for the show, uh, you can scoot on over to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page to see the live stream of the show. It's just me sitting here in the studio. That's no big deal. But I have cool stuff on the tablescape, um, <laughs> including Tiny Chef, one of my obsessions. You know, I've got Baby Yoda, Baby Groot, and Tiny Chef are my obsessions. Uh, one of the cutest books around, Parents, uh, Parents, Tiny Chef book is absolutely adorable. It is available now, Amazon, your Barnes and Noble, all of your, you, you can order it anywhere. It is absolutely fantastic. Uh, and I love it. it tells you my, <clears throat> how grown up I am. And of course, the tiny chef, Plushy. Um, and I, I can't wait till after the show. Pam and I are going to watch the latest installment of the tiny chef show on Instagram. He's doing favorite chefy sounds today. Um, so if you have not checked out this incredible little world of Tiny Chef, courtesy of Imagine Entertainment, um, and some guy's name who helmet, Brian Grazier and Ron Howard, um, check it out. Also, again, a huge thank you to Angela Cartwright for this beautiful, beautiful autographed Sound of Music family scrapbook uh, book that you can all buy. It comes wrapped in brown paper and string, as comes as no surprise. And a little teaser out here for you this week, Ghost Stories of Henry James. We're heading into Halloween time. Um, you definitely get, get, pick up a copy of Ghost Stories of Henry James and start taking a gander because there's a, a brilliant new show that is, that is out and about, uh, Blind Manor, and it's based on uh, the turn of the screw. So, and I'm very excited to watch this. I'm very excited I'll be talking to the cinematographer of the show uh, later this week. So, I'm giving you a little heads up um, of what's coming. And come on, we're heading into October. I mean, 2020 has been a big scare as it is. 
But now let's get some real scares and, and, and yells and some beautiful, beautiful filmmaking. But yeah, pick up a copy of Ghost Stories of Henry James and start checking that out before Blind Manor hits us. And ah, but our guest today, I'm very excited. We have Steve Balderson is joining us momentarily. He is on hold. Hi, Steve. Uh, to talk about filmmaking confidential. I have spoken with Steve over the years. He is a prolific independent filmmaker. Uh, he is also an author. He is also a lecturer. And filmmakers out there, I got to tell you, get this book. It's one thing. I, I have talked about this book, Realisms, before, about terminology and things on a set. That's one. That's great, and you can look it up on in a lot of d filmmaking for dummies, and find out what things are on a set, or gander through some books. But here's some real gems that Steve has put together in this book about based on his experience. It's based on his experience. You know, where do you start? What do you do? And we're going to get into all of that with Steve because I love this book. And then at the midpoint of the show, uh, we're going to be talking onion rings and more uh, when Dave Newberg and Molly Dworsky, co-directors of The Ringmaster, join us. Um, and I got to tell you, this is going to be an interesting conversation. And I'm warning everyone now, it will be no holds barred. <laughs> um, the premise of the film is great. The end, what happens in the middle of it is not so great in the process of filmmaking. Uh, but what Dave and Molly do to bring this film, to resurrect it from, uh, you know, the, the dregs at the bottom of the fryer, so to speak, is nothing short of a cinematic miracle. So I can't wait uh, to talk to them. But right now, we're going to welcome him live. Hello, Steve Balderson. Well, hello. How are you? I am so happy to be talking to you again. How are you? I'm great. It's so good to hear your voice. I wish I was there in person, but, you know, oh. look, we do what we do. I know. I wish you were, too. You know, and if we didn't have lockdown and COVID, next time, for the next book, for the next film. Um, yes, yeah. You know, people know I am a big fan of your work. You know I'm a big fan of your work. Um, we've talked about Algonzo, Helltown, Elvis Lives. I've seen them all. <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah. I and then I had to backtrack and see Firecracker because I had not seen that before. And that was one of your earlier works with Karen Black. But you yeah. and you over the course of the years, you have done everything within the con the construct of filmmaking. You have done costuming. You have done. Uh, production design you have done cinematography you have done sound you have done editing you write you direct you produce so you have had your hands in every aspect and then you do marketing you've had handled your own marketing and distribution as well uh and then working with distributors and publicists on top of that so when i tell people filmmaking confidential the pearls that you have in here, Steve, are godsends for filmmakers. Godsends. Thank you. Thank you. I, I hope so. I wish I would have had a book like this to read 20 years ago when I was starting. Um, you know, I was lucky because when I started in production, when I was back east and I was doing 
at the very infancy of cable television back in the 1970s. Um, that tells everybody, yes, I really am that old. Um, <laughs> I was lucky with a father who was in broadcast television and had been in broadcast television since 1948 or 49. So... I grew up in a television studio where everything is done practically and you learn how to do everything. And I had him, my dad, more or less as a mentor saying, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Now take a look, take a look at that. What do you see in that picture? What is wrong with that shot? Not everybody has that luxury or how to, uh, you know, you're going live. Okay. You only have X time. And what's live is live. So how do you think ahead and how do you compensate? And how do you think, okay, I'm not going to be able to edit. I'm not going to be able to cut. I'm not going to be able to do this. What do I do? I had that advantage uh, when I started. And I still, all of those principles, whenever I'm on a set or I'm producing something, all of that is still in my head. But for those of you that didn't have the benefit of my dad in their head, uh, they, they now have Filmmaking Confidential. <laughs> um that's really cool. And, you know, I, my father wasn't in the film business, but he's an entrepreneur. And so when I left film school and decided to start my journey, I was, I was advised to approach it from a business like manner mm -hmm. instead of how one might would, you know, normally approach it in a, in a traditional film manner. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I resonate with that also because I did have a supportive family and somebody to sort of help and encourage that, which I'm I'm very very lucky that my my parents were that way. Um, but for those that are are starting out, and even seasoned in seasoned indie filmmakers, and those of you that have listened to my show over the past almost seven years, um, or read any of my interviews, reviews, or heard me in Q and A's, um, trust me, there are a lot of you out there that really can benefit from this book. So. Let's let's dive into this book and what inspired you, Steve, to write it, number one. Well, I wanted to have a... I started maybe three or four years ago doing some workshops. And as I did that, I started putting the book together because it was clear to me that there are some secrets that I have or lessons that I've learned or the approaches that I take that I could see were very valuable to other filmmakers, um, whether they were just starting out or seasoned pros. And so as I continue to put it together, I, it was just really important for me to capture all of those. You know, the way that I budget a movie or the way that I schedule a movie, I found um, was unique. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't so... Uh, common and and you know I I never exceed a twelve hour workday, which is typically unheard of in the independent film world at least. Mm -hmm. And I I I wanted to capture all of that and put it down so that people could. I mean, essentially, it's to make the the whole process of filmmaking more effortless and yes. more enjoyable and and that's important. I think. I mean, for everyone. Well, and that's, and you even, on page 75, you address this in the book, to make it fun and rewarding for cast and crew, especially when it's a low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget. Um, you know, it, you can't pay them much, but bring in a nice caterer or get a local vendor to cater food for the crew or, or, or something. 
Um, that's very important. Um, and I think everybody that has ever, and I know my, my dad, rest his soul, and all of his compatriots who were with ABC in Philadelphia for so many decades, that was it. You give us free food when we're working double time and a half, you give us free food, we're happy. Um, and you, you totally. <laughs> that's, and essentially on page 75, that's, that's what you're telling, you know, make it fun and rewarding, you know, nice food or locate or an interesting location when it's totally within your purview to find a location or something. Um, because independent filmmaking in particular, it's not a big money maker, especially when you're starting out. And you're ready to pull your hair out because you go in thinking, I can do this. And then you realize very quickly, help um, and help. You give everybody help. I love your philosophy on budgeting. Talk about budgeting for people. Um, You don't start at the bottom. You don't start with zero and work up. Yeah, and I think that I, I... My first two films were budgeted using Movie Magic budgeting software, and we did do it that way. And it was a little backwards because it just didn't seem to work out. And what what we discovered was if you go in and you start plotting all these things you need, you know, as part of your crew or your cast or your your the operation, you always get to a figure at the bottom that is millions and millions of dollars, <laughs> and that was just not possible for us. So what I was advised to do was say, you know, hey, I think we can raise a few hundred thousand. Let's start there and do it in the reverse. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit more like operating off of a debit card instead of a credit card. You know, and if you had to spend $60,000 for, you know, your camera lighting and crew and all the pay for the crew, then you deduct Mm $60,000 from what you think you can raise. Yep. And, and and you do it in sort of the re- it's just reverse engineering, and maybe if you get something sponsored or donated, great. Yeah, that's that's gravy. But it's funny because that's how I have always done budgeting. Um, be it if I'm doing a budget for a project or a budget at home, I have X dollars, or I think I have X dollars. <laughs> Let's start deducting from there, and then it's right. like. Okay, well, we need a few more dollars, so where can we shift and what can we do? Which is where some of your other tips come in in the book about, you know, double dipping, cutting down on the number of bodies that you need. You know, can somebody do their own costuming? Do you really need a wardrobe person? Um, This really, when you read the book, Everything makes so much sense. It's really common sense. It's like, do I really need to do this? It's like you're standing in Macy's. Do I really need this $500 jacket? Uh, Right. Because it's not in the $4,000 budget. Um, Right. And and maybe you do. Maybe you find out. mm -hmm. I mean, I remember in my film Firecracker, this was days before drones. Mm-hmm. and things like that, yeah. there was the option of getting a helicopter. And it was only for the very final shot of the entire film. And I think it was going to cost us something like fifteen or $16,000. Yeah. And I was 
you know, this was brought to my attention and people said, hey, if, if you spend this on the helicopter, you won't have that money to be spent somewhere else. So maybe there's an alternative way you could do it or something like that. And at the end of the day, I decided to go with the helicopter. Mm-hmm. But I had very, very specific reasons. And, and you know, but then I, I was able to, uh, you know, I sacrificed an, another part of it that wasn't so important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's what a lot of filmmaking boils down to. Um, you mentioned the helicopter, and I did a PSA. I, I produced and directed a series of them back in, in the early 80s. And that was one of my decisions. Do I, I wanted a helicopter for a shot. Do I go with the helicopter or not? And I elected to rework the scene rather than spend that money that I could have put elsewhere. Right. Uh, So I totally... I think it's just any... Yeah, every person has their own criteria and their own, you know, what's important for the project. You know, maybe costumes are important for this project or maybe they're not. (laughs) Well, and this is where one of the early chapters in the book really comes into play about perception, an individual's perception. Mm -hmm. And I love how you break this out and how you mention the masters. You mention Hitchcock. Um, You've got a couple others in there that you mention. And it's like, is every camera placed perfectly? Is this the ideal lighting? Well, maybe not theoretically, but for the image that the filmmaker has for what they want, their perception, their individual perception of what they want to see, it is perfect. And that right. that ties right in to making these choices. Totally. And every, that's why, you know, each uh, great film or great uh, cinematographer and director and, and the stories, are how they are because it was it's sort of uh i say it later on in the book about you know a, uh, there's one person holding the brush mm-hmm. and uh if a lot of people are holding the brush it looks like it and in some of these cases with the greats and the greats uh they're been off they're auteurs they they hold the brush and all of it makes sense for that particular film yes whereas it may not make sense for somebody else's film right Yes, absolutely. And I love, and that's one of the great things with the book, because the way you have the chapters laid out, Steve, is they build on each other. As I just said, individual perception is early in the book. And Mm -hmm. then you build on that in terms of editing, in terms of shooting your sex scenes, Um, you know, in, in terms of even, you even talk about product placement here. Which a lot mm-hmm. of people don't, you know, free America, the land of free gift with purchase. Um, one of the greatest movie lines in history. And so true. Uh, <laughs> we will give you a plug if you will give us product for the film. Um, yeah. And, you know, these little things. Um, but these are the things that in the moment you're not really thinking of. Unless you've been there, done that, and it's become second nature. And totally. And I think that over the course of 20 years, you know, all these things have come to me, you know, on my third or fourth or fifth feature, I was still learning some of this stuff. I I hadn't yet, you know, done that. And so that's why I wanted to put it out so that if 
you know, people can just get all this now before they get, you know, before they make their next movie or before Mm -hmm. they make their first movie. Well, and something that that I really appreciate, you talk about getting stars, big names, uh, Mm. and hand in hand with that, you talk about musicians. And so many people think they have to get a big name actor tied into a film. Um, yeah. yeah, okay, you got Netflix, you got Hulu, you've got the studios, they want big names, and they have their list of names, and that's who they want. They also have the money to get those names. But the, uh, the discussion that you have in the book on this, in this subject area, I think, is so invaluable. And I, I, one of them involves with you know, dealing with somebody's agent, and how sometimes mm-hmm. that agent is not doing their client, is not operating in their client's best interest. Uh, and, then you right. ba- and then you backdoor something through a friend of a friend. And all of a sudden, a door opens. Um, right. I saw that happen with a, a dear, dear stuntman friend of mine that for years, because he also did indigenous stunts, acting, but... He's not getting any calls from his agent. His agent said, oh, nothing out there, nothing out there. And he was out on his own networking, which is what all the guys do and did. And they're fi- and finding out from stunt coordinators and casting people that, oh, yeah, we contacted your agent and said, no, 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 you're not interested. So, you know, wow. you're, you're, yeah. you're putting your, your, your words to the wise here in the book. Um. You know, don't go stalk somebody and hang out at their trailer on another set. But if you're getting treated badly by somebody's rep, and I, I mean really rude, and you mentioned this, um, mm-hmm. you know, okay, maybe try another way. If you really want to get to this person and, you know, try another another avenue, but without becoming a pest to somebody else so that you are then the rude person. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, even when I, I approached Karen Black uh, through a mutual friend, one of my old mentors who's since passed, um, she told me no, she, she, uh, maybe two or three times, and I just wouldn't let go of it. <laughs> and so, like, I just kept calling her and sending her notes. And then when I came to visit in Los Angeles before I lived here, I had a meeting with her and I went to meet with her. And then she finally agreed to do it after she met me. Um, but, you know, being persistent and you can do it in a nice way without being irritating, which is what mm-hmm. I would advise. Yes. Yes. And, of course, you also you offer an alternative. You, if you can't get a, a name actor, quote unquote, for your project, how about a name musician? Um, mm-hmm. quite often, and a lot of local bands are generally more than willing, and a lot of them already have a following. Now, 20 years ago, we didn't have social media what we have today. 40-some years ago when I started, um, definitely, we didn't have the Internet. Um, so, right. But word of mouth, especially within the music world, with clubs and when we can all go back to them again, uh, and we start having live venue entertainment. You find some of the best talent, name talent. It might not be a marquee on a movie talent, but it's music talent. And now, thanks to social media, that's going to get you 
a lot of play, a lot of press, um, and a lot of interest from people. Exactly. I mean, that's what I discovered when I was working on a film, uh, The Castrol Club, that starred uh, Kevin Richardson from the Backstreet Boys Mm -hmm. in his acting debut. And the fan base of the Backstreet Boys became our target market. And because that was as if I would have had George Clooney in my movie, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, because the fan bases are that huge. Um, And so for me, it made more sense to, I mean, luckily Kevin is a fantastic actor and had been in the musical Chicago on Broadway and Mm -hmm. maybe some musicians can't act so well, but I think a lot of them can because they're just performing just like actors are. They have characters that, are part of each song or, you know, I, I, I feel like sometimes musicians are also more excited about it because they're rarely asked Mm -hmm. to be in a movie. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. You know, I'm curious in how long did it take you? Did you sit down and write this or in order, or did you follow your own advice that you have when people are sitting down to do editing? Start anywhere, just pick a spot and start. Um, uh, I, I did sort of skip around. I mean, I, I wrote the, you know, the things that were coming to mind first. Mm -hmm. And then when I decided to put the book together, I put them in order, um, sort of from script to release, you know? And so you could follow the journey of what it might be to make a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it could have also been presented, I mean, out of order, the way that it's structured, you really could just open it and pick any chapter and start reading there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, ha- I have to tell you, one of my favorite chapters in the book is The Tale of the Emerald Digger. Oh, thank you. It is totally an anecdotal, allegorical story. But it is so on point. Tell people about this chapter because it is truly, I love this chapter. Because it, if this doesn't tell you about filmmaking and the thought processes, I don't think anything will. Yeah, thank you. It, it, that's my favorite. It, that was one of the first ones I wrote because it was uh, a statement about, you know, if you're putting your film together, no matter what stage you're in, writing it, editing it, um, filming it, releasing it, you know, when you look to try to appeal to other people, you just might shoot yourself in the foot. So the story is about this emerald digger who's trying to sell this beautiful emerald. And he goes to the first jeweler who doesn't really want it because it's not a diamond. And, you know, if he would bring him a diamond, he'd buy it, but he he doesn't want an emerald. So then the guy, the emerald digger, goes to an emerald specialty house And that jeweler says, well, it's too big. Nobody wants to buy a big emerald. They want little emeralds. So the Jew or the the hunter, the emerald guy has, you know, a a crossroad. Does he sell the emerald to the diamond buyer for next to nothing? Or does he cut it up into little pieces to sell to the emerald buyer and he makes that choice 
And of course, the the story is, you know, once you've cut up a gym, you can't glue it back together. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's it. And that is exactly what happens with films. You need to mm-hmm. know your tar. Who are you making this film for? Um, and this is actually something that I'm going to bring up with with my next guest to follow you with the documentary that was made because the first director clearly, okay, there was not a this didn't was not clear. Who are you making this film for? What do mm-hmm. you what do you want to say? Um, you know. Because once you make the choice to break it up, to break something up, and to go in one direction or another, you can't put it back together. Without right. I, I always advise filmmakers to know who will watch it and how they're going to sell it before they ever start writing the script. Mm-hmm. That is some of the best advice, Steve. Some of the best advice... Um, I've had other producers have mentioned that to me because they've had filmmakers come to them and, and the producer says, so who is this for? Who did you make this for? Mm-hmm. Well, for everybody. Well, okay, <laughs> right. yeah, ideally, yes, you want everybody to see your film. But you got to get realistic here. Who is going to see it? That's like, I can say, though, with relative confidence that Filmmaking Confidential, this book, the lessons that you have in this book, Steve, are not just for filmmaking. So many of the right. lessons in this book are applicable to almost any career, any avenue of life. It's stopping. It's thinking. It's using common sense. It's thinking ahead. And, it, you know, planning. Planning. You can't always fly by the seat of your pants, no matter how much you want to. And right. there's so many great life lessons in this book that go beyond just filmmaking. Um, but I have to say, some of the great, some of the great advice you give in this book is when you get to the film festival issues and marketing and distribution, um, because mm. that's a whole animal unto itself that really is the aspect of filmmaking that so many filmmakers are truly are clueless about and nobody really wants to give up the ghost on the secrets of that um they don't realize i need to budget for a publicist or i need to do this or i need to do that um and you you give up the ghost for them you you give them some insight here yes and it's it's because i wish other people would have been that way when i was doing it and mm-hmm. and I felt like it, there was no reason to hold that secret to hold that knowledge because yeah. it could only benefit everybody it's it's not like anybody's at a loss personally by sharing it mm-hmm. um so I I feel like I had to do my duty to just share it because it seems to me at the time that no one else was yeah and you're absolutely right um, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've been around for a long time, and so much of this people don't talk about. And it's not common knowledge um, in, certain fil- in certain communities, um, especially with you're, you're in film school. You're excited. I want to go make a movie. 
Um, or you're like Mickey and Judy, let's put on a show. Well, that's that's great. But then what do we do? And you, you, <laughs> right. you, you pull the curtain back and with no nonsense, you know, easy to read, short chapters, entertaining. It's fabulous, Steve. The book is fabulous. Thank you. Thank you so much. But now I want to, when are you going to make another movie? Now that, you know, here you are, you're, you're doing a book tour, you got the book out. Uh, when are you making another movie? Well, I'm very excited and incredibly fortunate because I have directed my newest feature, and it's it's the first feature that I sort of initiated in a number of years. And we filmed in the winter last year. Okay. And it stars Xander Berkeley, <gasps> Sarah Clark, and Mink Stoll. And it's called Alchemy of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And it's a dark, gothic, supernatural love story. Ooh. And it's, it's my cinematographer made it look like a Caravaggio. I mean, it is the oh. most beautiful thing that I've ever... It's unbelievable. Um, I can't wait for you to see it. But we luckily uh, went into post at the end of March. Oh, how so wonderful. So we've been able to work this whole time. Any idea when I'll get to see it? As soon as it's finished, before anybody. Yay! <laughs> I'm so happy. Oh, I've been waiting. Yeah. I've been waiting because we had that little flurry there with Helltown and Algonzo and Elvis Lives. And, you know, then you took time off, wrote a book. Um, exactly. So now, oh, oh, I can't wait, Steve. I cannot wait. Oh, unfortunately, my friend, we are out of time. Well, it was lovely to talk to you again. It is always lovely to talk to you. I can't wait to do it again. Um, hopefully next time about the film, the embargo will yep. be, you know, lockdown will be lifted and you can come in studio and we can play. Wonderful. I can't wait. Oh, Steve, thank you so, so much. And everybody, you can get the book everywhere. It's on Amazon. Where else is it for people to, to buy? Um, anywhere that paperbacks are sold, you can also use, you know, get the Kindle or the audiobook if you prefer audiobooks too. And of course, we would be remiss to forget to not mention that Lloyd Kaufman, the inimitable Lloyd Kaufman, wrote an introduction to the book. Uh, yes, L- <laughs> Lloyd is amazing. <laughs> I haven't talked to Lloyd in about ten years, but oh my God, he is a kick. He is a kick in the ass. That is the only way to describe totally. him. Oh, Steve, thank you so, so much. And we will talk again soon. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. All right, bye. And that was Steve Balderson talking about Filmmaking Confidential. And now, Pam's bringing them live for us. We have the miracle workers themselves. (laughs) Dave Newberg and and Molly Dworsky. Hello, guys. How are you? Hello. Hi, good. Thank you so much. You guys, if they if they give out miracle awards for salvaging a film and giving it direction and purpose, um, you guys get that award hands down. Um, we'll take it. That's Thank so you. nice of you. Um, <laughs> the ringmaster. This the idea for the ringmaster started out would have been a very cute film 
about a nice older man who'd been making these incredible onion rings his whole life. That would have been lovely. And somewhere in there, then-director Zach Cap. I don't know where we went off, where he went off the rails there. <laughs> but he was at least smart enough to call on you, Dave, and to bring you guys in. And so you could yeah. sit there and go, whoa. Um, you know, number one, when you came in, did I hear this correctly in the documentary? There were over 300 hours of footage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before I was really on, um, and, uh, you, you know, when you, when you ask like when it went off the rails, it was something that you were just talking about with your previous guests, you know, his <laughs> advice, uh, know what you want to write or know what you want to do before you start writing, mm -hmm. uh, it works for a scripted narrative, but also is a golden rule we discovered for a documentary as well. Um, cause I think, uh, the main issue is Zach didn't really have a full idea of what he wanted to make, uh, who he wanted to sh this for. And so it was kind of never really on the rails yeah. um, <laughs> from the get-go. But yeah, as, I'm, as I'm watching the documentary and, and you, you and Molly, the two of you get involved, and then I hear you saying, yeah, well, there was a, <laughs> over 300 hours of footage already. And it's, yeah. it's like, okay, this this should have been a simple little documentary. Um, what what happened? What can you expound on? Um, and what was it that really made you say, huh, yeah, we can help, but changing the entire yeah. tact, the entire focus, because essentially that's what Zach did. All of a sudden, it wasn't about Larry Lang, the onion maker. It was about Zach Cap, And that is evident very, very early on. Mm -hmm. um, rule one, I mean, you don't insert yourself as a documentarian. You know this. You guys know this. Um, you don't insert yourself and make yourself the documentary. And that's, that's right. clearly what was happening here. Um, yeah, yeah, I, he, you know, he, uh, like I was saying, he, he grew up, um, eating these onion rings, which, which are really good. They're delicious onion rings. Um, and, um, he got it in his head that he just wanted to make a documentary about these rings and about this subject, Larry Lang. Um, but there wasn't really a story uh, line that he was following or that he was shooting. He, um, he had just inherited a, a good amount of money from his grandfather and uh, he always wanted to be a filmmaker and kind of just like um, knew some of the parts of what held. he held. You know, he, he bought equipment, he hired a crew um, and the crew were people that I was friends with as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, very early on, they, they were calling me <laughs> and telling me that, you know, Zach didn't really have a plan or know what he was doing. They were just kind of shooting footage for the sake of shooting. Um, so it was early when I talked to them and told them that, you know, as much as you can, just shoot Zach to get as much footage of him as possible. Because your, wheel, um, your wheels and, were already turning in your head, apparently. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, I don't think Zach ever wanted to be the subject of the documentary, but he is not a 
you know, trained documentary filmmaker. Right. And so rather than documenting reality, he was kind of scripting a, a story um, with, with human lives, which, which, was, <laughs> which I thought was interesting as, you know, an objective observer of, of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that, you know, that's probably what the most interesting thing is going to be. Um, let him let him continue doing what he's doing. Let's see what he comes up with. But um, I thought it would be safe to get that coverage. And then um, when we finally did, I kind of had that, you know, I had that beginning idea um, and and kind of saw where we could go with it, but wasn't able to articulate it in a way that was resonating with Zach or some other people. And um, it was when, that was when Molly uh, came on board and really helped me and uh, we together uh, kind of crafted and molded this giant 300 hour lump of clay into, uh, <laughs> into this. Well, you know, once you came on board, Molly, how many more hours of footage did you guys have to go shoot? And then we're going to get into the fact that your that your server and waitress skills really came in handy. Um, <laughs> but, but how many more hours, when you actually sat down and tried to figure out how to salvage this and where this could go? Um, how much yeah. more? How much more did you shoot? Okay, so when Dave and I, when I started working on the movie, they they had what Dave and I thought of as more than enough footage. And then when I joined and found out that Zach wanted more footage, I, I guess we probably filmed again another 10 hours in Minnesota and the lead up to Minnesota, the trip there, and then another 20 hours, 30 hours in Las Vegas. For the for the oh, second God. round, and then we also did some more interviews that we didn't intend on doing. So probably another fifty hours. I don't know what do you oh. think, Dave? Yeah, around there. It was. I mean, it, but it was a little bit more surgical at that point because we had already mm-hmm. kind of assembled the movie, and we had some we had some holes that needed gluing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also, I mean, there you know there was a big X factor. We didn't know what the trips to Minnesota or Las Vegas were going to entail, so some stuff changed, but we knew we wanted certain interviews. We wanted to like ask specific questions to connect storylines mm-hmm. that we had plotted out, but didn't have any uh, sort of connective tissue for. Mm-hmm. How many hours did the two of you spend editing just to get to that point where you could plot out the surgical precision for the additional stuff? Oh my, oh my God. God. We, uh, it, it almost tore us apart. We were probably wow. spending every waking hour possible because we were, we were working toward, uh, a festival deadline. And mm-hmm. then Dave and I were going out of the country. So we were fast and furiously in our, our entire apartment became an editing bay and we, we didn't have a relationship anymore. We were just editing the film. That was our, our, that was our living and breathing purpose. <laughs> Um, and probably, gosh, Dave, how many hours, how many weeks of time, uh, how many full 40-hour work weeks did we cram oh into God. that few months? I don't, I mean, yeah, uh, we, we probably crammed in six months into three or four months. Oh I don't even God. know. Like That's... it was, we, it, I, I had, um, 
just finished a project and uh, a television project and just did I I just decided that this was going to be what I was doing. So it was a full-time thing and I'm sure as you know, you know, when you're in the creative process, um that can pretty much take over your entire life. Mm-hmm. Of course, 300 hours of footage that's kind of haphazard. Um that more than takes over your life. That has to be a mental drain on you as well, trying to come in and salvage something. Because I can see, oh, I can see, you know, Larry Lang, this is a very sweet older man. Um, you can tell that, and you want to do something, you want to try and, and help shine a light on him or make him appear in a much better light than the footage was showing. Um, at that point. Um, so I'm sure that your heartstrings, you know, got involved there as well. Um, so that this poor man didn't think that all these hours that he had spent and what he had gone through with Zach um, was not in vain. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the one thing that you, you'll realize pretty quickly after watching the documentary is that, you know... Zach wanted to make the documentary, but um, it not Larry didn't. No, Larry yeah. didn't actually, you know, wasn't on board with with the level of involvement that was required from this. So, yeah, I mean, you know, um, we we logged that 300 hours of footage um, and start, you know, the story sort of settled to the top, and um, and the story that was the one that we wanted to tell that was, you know, what we thought was the most interesting and entertaining and what was the truth was that, you know, Larry wasn't, you know, <laughs> treated uh, the way that he probably would have wanted to be, had he even been excited about being in the documentary. So yeah, it was sad. And I think that, you know, to an extent, we Molly and I also ended up getting involved in the film in a way that, um, documentary filmmakers shouldn't um, it was to a lesser extent for sure but uh we were sort of enabling zach at that point mm-hmm. which uh you know was, was a fine line that we felt we were writing the whole time and that that really comes across and every, any filmmaker out there is going to see the dilemma because for my money that was a dilemma for you guys and you were walking that yeah. very fine line. And my heart was bleeding for the two of you as I was watching. Um, I, I, oh, yeah. And to discover that the story that is the most interesting to tell is a heartbreaking one is not necessarily what you want to discover when you're going through those hours of yeah. footage. And we could have taken those hours in many different directions because obviously 300 plus hours <laughs> is way more uh, fodder. For, than the movie that you you know hour and a half movie you saw, um, but to discover that the best direction, the most compelling direction for all of those hours is that you have to make an argument for a heartbreaking story is uh, was a hard pill to swallow for us, and we argued about it, and we argued with Zach about it because it was the hardest pill for him to swallow uh, because it was so disparate from what his plan was to start, which was to celebrate. The onion ring, the end, um, and to and to get them syndicated, and and to to have your friends settle on actually no, this is a kind of a story about a failure, um, 
was uh, that that took a lot of of arguing uh, mm-hmm. between I think the three of us, and then it included you know extends into the the friends and family too. Was oh a, sure it became an emotional thing, yeah, for the filmmakers, which was not intended. Well, and then poor you, Molly. Here you guys are in Vegas, and a big part of this was Zach's desire to broker a deal with the Raiders who were going to Vegas for Raider rings and have a tasting session at Pietro's restaurant, or Piero's restaurant, and then you ended up cooking onion rings. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Somehow, I don't think you signed on for chef work uh, <laughs> with this documentary. Oh. I'm watching that. No, at, I, 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 in the mo- no, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just, I, I, and even, even though I've been in the restaurant industry for uh, 12, 15 years at that point, I, I almost forgot everything I knew in that moment because it was so not what I was expecting. <laughs> and I'm, I'm watching this footage of here is Larry Lang's sister, Linda, there with the perpetual tote bag on her shoulder um, in front of the fryer. And she's cooking and Larry is, and it's very obvious from early on, from very early footage, it is obvious that Larry does have, it was the beginning of some cognitive difficulties. Mm -hmm. Um, And we really see that come to, it just explodes in Las Vegas. That's another thing that. Yeah, that's another thing that we kind of didn't realize until we had ingested all the footage and logged it. Um, you know, it, it, it took that context to actually see the decline because, it's, you know, when we started shooting, he was definitely more with it. Um, and then, yeah, as you said, that scene in Vegas was not what anyone was expecting. Yeah, and when I saw Molly start cooking, and frying onion rings, I was like, oh, my God, where is this going? Um, uh, That just, that really broke my heart. Broke my heart. Because you see, at that point, you see that it was everybody, everybody seemed to be at Larry's sister, Zach, Zach's mother. um, They were really oblivious to Larry. Um, Mm -hmm. had they been paying attention to Larry, it wouldn't have gotten to that point. And for you guys to come in and salvage this as filmmakers, um, this really is a master class in editing, in passion. I can't believe you guys pulled this off and pulled together a documentary that is... I kid you not when I when I say I you know had emailed Kim and said it is it's a tasty treat because you <laughs> see I so appreciate what you guys did to resurrect and turn this into something that is more than palatable. That, Thank you. That's so validating. Thank you. That I, see, I feel seen. <laughs> uh, that is just such a gift for the two of you to be able to do that. And to do it against all odds. Um, because you were, f- this what really was, Zach, real, no offense to Zach, but Zach, he is, he's like a bull in a china shop. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with filmmaking, <laughs> you know, what was, you know, once you figured out where to go with this, then how, was it more normal for you, more of a normal process at that point, once you figured out where to take this and how to shift the entire intent and POV of the film? Yeah, I mean, you know, for for us, uh, normal, um, I, I don't think any part of it was actually normal because spending that much time <laughs> on a project is just a, a extraordinary thing to do no matter what it is. But yeah, we, you know, we both um, have worked in, in writer's rooms for television. Molly, what Molly was really helpful doing was um, integrating that uh, TV writing process into mm-hmm. our, our editing process. So once we did have an understanding of the story we wanted to tell, we really just beat it out like you would a script. Um, we, you know, we, we wrote every beat that we wanted to include in the film, uh, every possible beat that we wanted to include on the note card. And we, you know, just moved things around on a big giant cork board and tried to figure out, you know, does this work? If we put this here, does that make sense? If we, you know, if we don't have this piece, so it was just moving pieces around and, we ended up that was so that that was our first step in in the actual editing process was was a a, a writing process. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, and mo- then wanting. To, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Molly. Oh, just I was just going to say that uh, wanting to respect everyone that's featured in the film because we believe and we watched in real time everyone's good intentions sort of go south. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wanting to tell a story that humanizes, and even us, and knowing that the two of us uh, joining the process uh, can be controversial, can be seen as a, a not a not a wise or kind choice, and we also, you know, just wanting to find a way to tell a story that makes everyone that honors everyone's own perspective of seeing themselves as a helper and. Uh, a good person, um, even though this group of really good people trying to do a good thing might have had the objective result of being kind of bad. Mm-hmm. You know, let me ask you, especially Dave, you've been around long enough working on enough stuff um, mm-hmm. that and I think I think you know this and Molly, I'm sure you do, too. With a documentary, you may have a ballpark idea when you go into a doc as to what you want to tell. But you you do not pre you don't have predisposition and you don't script it out. I equate it um, because I'm also a lawyer. I don't practice, <laughs> do not practice. But I'll never forget another lawyer. She was up for going for her first trial, and she wrote out her closing argument before the trial had even started, um, not taking mm-hmm. into account anything happening along the way. And with a documentary. It kind of the story you need to you might have an idea of what you want to tell, but you can't plot it out as what we see. Zach was trying very hard to plot out. He wanted a big finish. He wanted a big this, big that. That's right. And this is not how documentaries are normally done. You don't plot them out and script them out. Um, 
to the degree or that you have to come in and then script it out to salvage and to build a story. That's right. That's, and, and, you know, that's, that's sort of that fine line that we found ourselves writing, which um, that's what separates true documentary filmmaking from reality television or, you know, docudramas and stuff like that, which are in the industry known as scripted reality, um, which is not reality. It's, it's, um, it's not the truth. And so we were contending with, and we had the luxury of um, being able to show that intention to script reality, um, which allowed us to actually have what is what we consider is a true documentary, uh, a objective version of the truth of what happened, even though um, what was happening was an attempt to alter reality. Mm-hmm. Now, and, well, yeah, but it, yeah. No, I was going to say, having done this, will the two of you ever go near a documentary again? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It was so, so challenging, so hard, um, and really tested us, but was so rich. And we do believe that um, we, we are able to find the truth and something really compelling in, in a sort of heartbreaking, bittersweet, uh, story and reality is so infinitely interesting. Uh, so I'd, we would definitely do it again. We would definitely work with Zach again. We love him. Um, we we want <laughs> we want to tell true stories uh, again. And this was this was a, an especially challenging one to work on. And I bet if we tried again, we would do a lot differently. But uh, we still we still loved it, and we're so proud of the film and so excited for its release. Um, yeah, definitely would again, wouldn't you, Dave? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it was this process was not the way to do it. We'd start differently and hopefully come in at the beginning rather than you know t- more toward the end uh, and and have a pile of footage that we shot intentionally mm-hmm. um, rather than having to discover the story inside of. You mean you you don't want to go through three hundred hours of footage again? <laughs> I don't think I You do want to that join the team, Debbie? <laughs> Not to go yeah, through 300. You, you want to help log? You can log some footage. I'll, I'll log <laughs> some footage. Maybe I'll stop at 200. <laughs> we'll keep it from okay, 3. <laughs> we'll keep it we'll from 3. Okay, that's good. But now, because <laughs> this was a very untraditional manner of coming into a project and what you went through to bring this documentary to its ultimate fruition and seriously, listeners you need to see this documentary filmmakers you need to see this documentary and just moviegoers see the documentary larry lang is a very sweet sweet man um and i love seeing him on screen when he's on screen and he reminds everybody of, of their old grandfather of a days gone by and times past so it's so beautiful to see that and for filmmakers then to see what dave and molly have done to bring this film to its ultimate conclusion is it truly is masterful but i'm curious for each of you what did the two of you learn about yourselves as filmmakers in stepping into the ringmaster because it's like you were leading a three ring circus here at the end not mm-hmm. onion rings but a three ring circus mm-hmm 
So I'm curious what you guys learned about yourselves as filmmakers. Um, hmm. Well, for I think, me, uh, I'll go first, Dave. Sorry. It, okay, yeah, I think, um, <laughs> it's our, I I'm think in that both right of us now, have actually, so a sense of story um, that we... Uh, that really, I mean, it, it was validating, I think, to to really uh, be able to see the story and then uh, tell it. And um, so I'm, um, I, I, I feel more confident in my ability, in my storytelling ability than, um, than I had prior to doing this. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think that would be the, the main takeaway for me. I, I, I I'm happy that we were able to tell the story that we wanted to uh, in a true way. And what about for you, Molly? Yes, sorry. Dave and I are on these different phones because I'm in Minnesota actually visiting my whole family. Um, so it's so sweet to be in Minnesota and have the film coming out um, and be in the with the leaves changing. I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of surreal and beautiful. But um, I learned about myself that I love honesty um, in filmmaking and in my storytelling, I always want to be chasing, uh, trying to uncover the truth and going deeper. And um, even when it's ugly or painful uh, or makes me especially vulnerable, I think that it's really um, helps, helps me feel connected to an audience if I know that I've been authentic and how I chose to tell a story, whether it's my story or, or someone else's. And then the other thing I learned about myself as a filmmaker is how much I value the collaborative process and how much of the story was uncovered through conversation, uh, mm-hmm. through difficult conversation between us and Zach and even some of the interviews that we did. Just trying to get to the truth, uh, the deepest truth, is is the most interesting to me and doing that collectively collaboratively I learned is my favorite way of making art Mm. well speaking of making art what are each of you working on now I think Dave you're executive producing creep show Halloween special and you're producing for the Russo's uh, magic Mm -hmm. the gathering Magic the Gathering, yep, we're in production on that. Um, Creepshow, uh, the Halloween special is animated. Um, uh, this pandemic has uh, really uh, allowed some people to explore animation um, that haven't before, and that's mainly what I do is produce mm-hmm. cartoons. Um, so that's going to air on September 26th, and our, we had a premiere of our sci-fi October. original series, Wildlife, on Saturday, and that airs Saturdays on Sci-Fi Network. Uh, at 12.15 a.m. It's a weirdo animated uh, comedy uh, about a post-apocalyptic zoo. <laughs> filled with talking animals. Um, and, yeah, those are my, that's what uh, we got going on right now. Oh, and what about for you, Molly? Well, besides being so excited for the October 6th release of The Ringmaster, um, I am a musician also, so I've done a lot of musical theater, which uh, is on hold right now, but I'm in a couple different ba- musical bands uh, that have albums coming out this coming month. So my band Talking Tree will have an album coming out on the 1st, and then I'm in a band called Sumo, spelled S-U-M-E-A-U, and we have an album coming out also uh, over the course of October. So some musical releases, um, but then just 
really psyched about the Ringmaster uh, coming out. Well, it's, Prime Video, Google Play, Apple TV. Yeah, it's going to be everywhere. Um, and I can't remember. Are there going to be any theaters? Will we be in theaters there's, for this one? There's not a theatrical release right now. Um, we're, uh, we're with 1091 Pictures, and um, it's a digital and on-demand release right, um, right now. So, yeah, hopefully uh, when theaters open back up, we'd be in there. It was, you know, it was cool to see it in theaters during uh, the film festivals. That was a really cool experience. I, yeah. I am we desperate, again. desperate for theaters to yeah. open back up. And Yeah, I bet you are. I bet you are. There are so many movies that deserve a big screen experience. I think the Ringmaster should be seen on the big screen. This is when I wish we had smell a vision so we could at least smell those wonderful <laughs> onion rings. Um, I oh, think totally. any theater should be making onion rings and serving them in the lobby. Um, <laughs> to go Amen. with to go with the film. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. But oh, guys, this has been just October is going to be huge for the two of you. Yeah, we're excited, and and when the movie does start to uh, circulate, we want the audiences to know that a portion of profits will go towards Alzheimer's research, which oh. has become really important to all of us uh, through the process of making the film. Mm. And this is another instance where watch the film to the very end. And there's a wonderful, wonderful epilogue on there. So you can find out what's happened with Larry and uh, what's going on in his world. Guys, I can't thank you enough. This has been a joy to have you on the show today. Um, Again, miracle workers, miracle workers. Um. This tr- Thank you, Debbie. This truly is some of the finest shuffling and storytelling um, that I have seen somebody step in and do. Um, well, you- we're so flattered. We're so flattered and honored to be on the show, so appreciate you allowing us to be here. Oh, any time. You guys have to come back on again. Thank you. We will after, that, after the next documentary when you're going to log 200 hours of footage for us. <laughs> All right, you got a deal. Guys, thank you so, so much. And I can't wait to talk to you you. both again. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that was Dave Newberg, Molly Dworsky, talking about the Ring co-directors, editors on the Ringmaster. Um, October 6th, it's out. And, of course, watch for Creepshow Halloween special, which Dave is exec producer on October 26th. Uh, his wildlife series, animated series on Sci-Fi Network, and then albums, Molly's in two bands. Uh, it, the talent never ends. The work never ends. That is all the time we have today of Yes, We Ran Over Again. Um, but go by Filmmaking Confidential, October 6th, see The Ringmaster. That's it for today. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.